Brittany, Jesus, keep me near the cross. What a great thought today as we hear on Palm Sunday. It's good to be together in the house of the Lord, right? Amen. What a great time of worship. Thank you, Alex, for leading us in worship and singing and, and for you in giving. And now we're going to worship the Lord in the reading and study and application of his word. Uh, before we do that, if you have little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church downstairs, they can certainly be dismissed at this time, follow the teacher's that direction and they will take the kids downstairs and pick them up after it's all over. Uh, if you'd like to keep them with you, you're welcome to do that as well. And we, uh, we love to have kids and kids in the service, so please feel free to do what you'd like. We are in a continuing study today through uh, the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's been really great to, um, to be in that, this particular study at this time of year. And it's just been an extended time where we can talk about the resurrection, which is uh, the key to the gospel and everything that we proclaim and understand to be true. And so we're, we're grateful for that opportunity. We're starting a new section today as we move into verses 29 through 34. So I'd like to turn with there, if you would, 1 Corinthians 15. It's great to be in the Lord's house to remember Palm Sunday, knowing uh, as you're turning there full well, uh, his obedience to the Father's will singing and cheering of the crowd would soon be turned to jeering and scorn and they would yell for his death just a few days later and it's what happened after his death uh, three days after that that our focus is on currently and so uh, we're currently working through chapter 15 it has as its major focus the important aspects of the physical bodily resurrection of jesus it's particularly wonderful to have been able to spend all this time that we've spent already dealing with this marvelous reality particularly as it landed today, and including Resurrection Sunday. So I'd like us to read in our passage together this morning, as is our habit, and we'll introduce this next section. So if you look at verse 29 with me, 1 Corinthians 15, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? Verse 31. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Verse 34. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now we have... Uh, study the Bible together over the years, and during that time of study, I have suggested to you an approach to that Bible study, and that approach is, uh, what does the Bible say, what does it mean by what it says, and then finally, how does that apply to me, or how are my actions to be conformed to what I understand from these passages? It's not asking, what does this passage mean to me? It's asking, what does a passage mean and how do I apply that to my own actions? And it's really just responding in obedience to the principles that are presented. And that is just a, just a very rounded out way that you can approach your study, which I hope you're doing every day, in the word. What does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Or how do, are my actions to be conformed now by what I understand the Bible to say in this particular passage? And again, it appears that this approach will work here as we look at this passage that we're studying this morning. Over the last 28 verses, we have studied the resurrection. Verses 1 through 12, uh, is, it is the essence of the good news. The, the tomb is empty. The reality is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Lots of people saw him alive, even people who didn't want to see him alive and were of the least likely of witnesses were allowed to see him and were witnesses of that fact. And then this is the application in light of that very well-established fact. There is an enormous impact on the hope of our faith based on the bodily resurrection. So we can understand how secure we are in the fact that there is much proof that Christ bodily rose from the dead. And so Paul, using the irrefutable nature of Jesus' resurrection and giving it the importance that it needs and that it merits, says, so if it is as some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead, how will that impact what you believe? It's all very practical. If the Bible actually did confirm that there is no resurrection, as some of them say, what does that mean and how would that apply to you? See, so Paul basically then takes them through and in verses 12 through 20, Paul answers some questions, uh, some, some of these questions of application then, if that's the case. If Christ didn't rise, even though it's very, very clear that he did, if Christ didn't rise, how would that apply? In a very ingenious way, he answers it from the negative. He takes a position that some of them were holding, bodily resurrection doesn't happen, and he provides the personal consequences, the application, if that is indeed the case. And so he says, if the resurrection didn't take place, then the gospel's a sham, or it has no substance. And here's how that false doctrine applies. If the resurrection didn't take place, then your faith is a sham too. So Paul just makes this application. If this is what we understand to be true, then your faith has no substance. Another thing you should know about the application of this false doctrine, Paul says, if no one physically rises from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, then we're all a bunch of liars. So we've been saying that Jesus rose, and that is the key and the cornerstone, if you will, to the gospel, but we've just lied. And further, if no one is raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then the object of your faith is without power, which means that you remain in the power of your sin. Here's the thing. If people are still in their sins, Paul says, then what does Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures actually mean? Anyway. And so in that case, Jesus' death has accomplished nothing. Then Christ died without resurrection would be a condemned, not justified Christ. How could he justify others if he couldn't rise himself, see? Faith in Christ then would be futile. Christ wasn't raised. Believers would still be dead in their sins and dead in their trespasses like any other pagan. So Paul says, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Now, some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead. Okay, let's apply that and find out how serious this uh, accusation really is. And then Paul says, you know, those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who died in Christ, will prove to have been lost. And then Paul gives the church another principle of consequence, and he says this. He says, if the dead are not raised, and we've set our hope on the raising of Christ, we've really just wasted our lives. And that's the final application. All through your life, you've just wasted it, really, by way, then, if you think about your life, all the fighting against temptation, all the struggling with sin, all the seeking to please Christ, all the obeying of Scripture, all the uh, Bible studies, all the suffering and the taking up of the cross, and all the ridicule, and all the witnessing, see... We've done all of that for nothing. It was of no effect. It had no power. It didn't matter. It didn't last. That's the application. If Paul says it's very well-affirmed fact, Christ rose from the dead, but if you say he didn't, then there's a whole bunch of applications you need to make to your life, and these are those applications. And it's really, really sad. But verse 20 says it's not so, because Christ, what? Did rise from the dead. The opposite, then, of Christians being the most to be pitied among men, in fact, the fact of the resurrection alters that whole situation. Paul states this fact with real simplicity and, and assurance. You know, he, he doesn't have any doubts, clearly. He just says Christ did rise from the dead. This is not even a 
We can't even entertain the thought that Christ didn't because he did. And, we, and there was a whole bunch of people saw him, and it's very well affirmed fact, and the tomb is empty. We see, and then Paul's words has been raised in the perfect tense. Not only did Christ rise on a certain day in history, he continues permanently in his character as risen Lord forever. That's just a marvelous thing to think of, and that's the application. See, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? You're very secure in your faith. Why? Because not only did Christ rise in history, he continues as risen Lord right on through today. The one you've placed your faith and trust in has not changed his position from this risen, resurrected Lord forever. Now, you get to verses 20 through 28. I'm just kind of establishing a pattern Paul is using to teach because that's going to help us as we look at these new passages we're seeing today. Now, verses 20 through 28, Paul shows the very broad impact of the resurrection on finally setting up and accomplishing the end of all things, the turning of the kingdom over to the Father. Now, we finished this whole section last week, so I won't go through the whole thing again. But the application is this. Those made righteous will be resurrected to eternal life. So if you know Christ as your Savior, place your faith and hope in him, you'll be resurrected to eternal life. And those who have remained in their sins will be resurrected to eternal death. Very simple applications. Very harsh, perhaps, and we looked at that very harsh day uh, that that day will incorporate last time. But the fact of the matter is, the application there is this. If Christ is going to bring about the end of all things and bring all things in subjection, all powers, dominion, and authority, and all the enemies of God under his feet, then that means a whole lot of things in application to the people of the world, particularly to the, to the righteous, those who have come to faith, it means that you'll be resurrected to eternal life, the first resurrection. And those who remained in their sin will be resurrected to eternal death, the second resurrection. All the temporary authorities, all the powers, all dominions, all rendered powerless. So as you look around your life, as you look around in the news, as you see what's on television, as you hear what's going on in the world, just recognize that someday those people who have that power and those people who have that authority will no longer have it. All that authority will be brought under Christ and handed over to God. So that's very encouraging as you think about application. All the enemies of God will be brought low, brought into subjection, and the kingdom will be turned over to God. And so, like we saw from the previous verses... Paul gives the church the doctrines of the resurrection in verses 1 through 12 and the application of that doctrine, the motivation to embrace it in verses 12 through 20. Now he does the same thing here and he gives the doctrine of the resurrection in verses 20 through 28 and the application of the doctrine beginning in verses 29 and following. So as you think about that then and we work our way through the chapter and we understand what the Bible says about the resurrection and what it means by what it says, there obviously will be some important application that we need to make as he moves into this next section. Think about this. Because the resurrection is a reality, because the resurrection is a fact, it carries with it, now catch this, beloved, some great incentives or some great motivations to live a certain way. That's Paul's point in this next section. And just like in, ver in verses 12 and following, if we move, if we move remove, Bodily resurrection, we lose those incentives and we lose those motivations. For example, just a couple of illustrations here that will help us, okay? Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Think about that. And we studied that um, many couple of years ago as we went through this book. But Paul says this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, Paul gets done in Romans with 11 chapters of God's provision of salvation and righteousness. And he comes to verse 1 of chapter 12, and he gives some imperatives. He says, 
That's why you see, therefore, because of all God has done through Christ, number one, present your living bodies as a sacrifice to God in worship to him. Because of what Christ has done, because of the salvation provided for you, here's what you do. You present your bodies a living sacrifice to God in worship. And number two, don't allow yourself to be stamped in the pattern of the world. And number three, allow the word of God to transform you. Because of what Christ has done, because of the salvation provided, and then there's this incentive. In making this a habit in your life, you'll be able to discern the will of God, what is good for your life, and what's acceptable to God and perfect. You see? Because of what God's done, do these things. And when you do these things, these will be the blessings that are given to you. These are incentives to do them, the motivations. To what? To present your body a living sacrifice and worship to him. Don't allow yourself to be stamped in the pattern of the world. So examine yourself. Make sure you're not following world's patterns in anything. And allow the word of God to transform you. And if, when you do that, there's a much of incentive that comes along with that, see? Here's the thing now. Connect this. It's unlikely that people are going to give their life to something they don't really have hope in. Right? Now, we're not talking about the truth of the hope. Because you could talk about Islam, and there's a bunch of people, con they're convinced that what the prophet has said is true. And so they live in that way. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what you're convinced to be true. Okay? And this, as Paul says, the resurrection is true. Or is Islam is false. So resurrection is true, but it's unlikely people are going to give their life to something they don't really believe in. Now, Paul's words from Philippians 1, 20 through 24 is a great example of that. Listen to this. Paul says this. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I'll not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verse 22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is very much better. Verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Now let's put that together. In chapter 2, Paul says, He's being poured out like a drink offering. And if you go back, you can read that on your own. His body's given in sacrifice to the ministry of Christ because here's the thing. He fully expects to see Christ and be rewarded by him, right? So here's the thing. He knew that someday he'd be in heaven and see the fruits of his labor. And he said, that's far better. And it's this resurrection hope that allowed the Apostle Paul to give his life continually and finally to put his head on a block and have it severed from his body and he did it, mark this, with absolute faith that he would see Christ. Why? Because of the facts of the resurrection, you see? And it motivated everything else he did. It was an incentive to give his life away. Why? Because this wasn't all there was. This was the shadow. That's the reality. Christ's resurrection proved it. And now I can live a certain way because I understand the facts of this resurrection, you see? This is very important because Paul's going to move on into this next section. He's going to say the same thing. He knew he would see the people he loved, Paul did, and people he won to Christ in this life, he knew he would see them in the next life because Christ was raised so he would be raised. And so great incentive, great motivation by way of application by what we know about the resurrection, see? Paul said of he and Barnabas in 2 Corinthians 1a, another illustration, he says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Now catch this. this is, I love that. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's just a kind of an understated, unbelievable faith of Paul. And I kind of wonder how we would line up with this in a similar situation. He says this. Of our affliction which came to us in Asia, 
that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. So pause right there. Things were so dangerous and so bad that they thought they were going to be killed. And that's all documented for us in Acts chapter 16. Then Paul says, verse 9, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In other words, they didn't think they were going to make it through the real. They already had the sentence of death in their mind. They said, we're going to die, all right? And perhaps you've been in that situation. Maybe it was of your own doing. Maybe you're, you know, on a four-wheeler and you thought, I'm going to die, like in all your whole life flashed in front of you. That's not talking about that. It's talking about here, Paul's in a situation, in a city, and he already thinks he's going to die. They're not going to make it. Not only is it rough, we've already determined because of the crowd and everything that's going on, we're probably going to get, we're kind of probably going to get killed, okay? So they don't think they're going to make it through their ordeal. So catch this. They encourage themselves how? By saying, okay, if we're killed, God can raise us up. Isn't that great? He says this, indeed, the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. It's like, I've got no hope in my own self. I don't think we're going to make it. But what I do have hope in is that God raises the dead. So maybe he'll just raise us right back up after they slaughter us. But for sure, we'll be raised later. So that can be encouraging to me. Whatever it is, I have this sure hope. See? Verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver. So in other words, they made it out. And if you read Acts chapter 16, you realize Paul wasn't killed there. And they made it out, and so did Barnabas. So they didn't die after all, but they will one day, see, and he'll do just what he said he'll do. He'll raise us up. And so, so he says, he on whom we have set our hope, he will yet deliver us. So Paul's very confident. Why? Because Christ was raised, right? He understands that even in the difficult times of life, if death is upon him and the sentence of death is already in his mind, it doesn't matter because Christ is raised and he has the power to raise at any point in time and he can raise us, but for sure he'll raise us in the end. And so I just go on doing what I'm supposed to do for Christ because I'm fully confident that he'll do exactly what he said he would do. He knew God would raise him because he raised Christ. He put his faith in Christ and that gave Paul a lot of freedom, didn't it? To respond in obedience. That's a lot of motivation, isn't it, beloved? A lot of incentive because of the resurrection. And that's Paul's emphasis here. And if you think about Stephen from Acts chapter 7, willing to be stoned, laying down under stones for his testimony while asking God to what? Forgive everyone who's participating. So not only is he just fully confident that Christ is going to raise him, he's so confident he doesn't even care about revenge. He's like, Father, just forgive them. They don't have any idea what they're doing, and I'm going to be with you anyway, so no big deal. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And beloved, catch this, all right? Nothing less than resurrection hope could have motivated Stephen. He believed he would see his master face to face and hear, well done, Stephen. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. We've looked at this passage a bunch of, a bunch of times. Just this hall of, that's a hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36. And others experienced mocking and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, verse 38, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Why'd they do that? Well, the answer is in verse 35, isn't it? They believed they would obtain, obtain what? A better, what's it say, beloved? Oh, I skipped it. A better resurrection. Right? They knew by faith that they would see Jesus. That he would reward them for their faithfulness. They were fully confident. So they 
did exactly what the Lord wanted them to. Why? Because they, they look forward to obtaining a better resurrection. Maybe he, they would be raised right back. Maybe they'd be restored right back, their loved ones. Perhaps not. Perhaps they'd have to wait to the, to the rapture. Perhaps they'd have to wait until uh, the, the first resurrection of those who come before the church, whatever it was. But they were completely confident. Peter, who uh, by tradition, uh, is, we're told, that was crucified upside down, comments on the motivation uh, to live a righteous life. In 1 Peter 2, 24, he says this, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. We can live a righteous life because Christ went to death on the cross and rose. We have no problems living a righteous life. We're motivated to do it because Christ told us to, and he laid down his life for us. See? And John tells us in 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this. He laid down his life for us that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So again, the, the cross, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Christ becomes this motivation to live in a certain way. It is the incentive to move forward in faith to do the things God has laid out for us. So Paul is saying here, you know, there's strong motivation to respond in obedience to Jesus' commands. People aren't going to present their bodies to Christ. They aren't going to come to Christ they aren't going to serve Christ. They aren't going to live a holy life if we don't have a resurrection. And so again, we see that Paul's approach in this chapter is to appeal to Jesus' authority over eternal life and his authority over the first and second resurrections to do the things that they will do. And so he clearly explained all these things as such a sure hope for the future. So because you're standing on such a sure hope, these next things become no problem. But if you switch it around and say there's no resurrection, then why would they do any of these things? See, and that's going to be the point that we're going to see in just a minute. People aren't going to give their life to something they don't really have hope in. If Jesus has, and this is the application, if Jesus has no authority over these things, then, in effect, that has removed some major incentives out of the Christian life. And it's removed motivation to respond in obedience. And if you tell people Jesus really isn't the first fruits, and no one is really his, and he can't come back because he's still in the grave, and so you won't rise either, and so there are really no consequences, there won't be any rewards, and there won't be any punishments, and no one is holding anybody accountable, see, what makes you think they're going to bother with Christianity? Or what makes you think they're going to live a sacrificial life? Or what makes you think they're going to set their life apart to holiness if there's no resurrection? That's Paul's point. On the other hand, if there is a resurrection, if we will face Christ and be at the judgment seat of Christ, if there will be a day of reunion in heaven, if there will be a time when we dwell with the Lord Jesus and the saints and in the ages forever, if there are those things in eternity for which we hope and in which we can believe, then there's motivation to live for Christ, see, in this life. So don't kid yourself. The resurrection is everything, see, as it moves on to motivation and incentive to do the life that Christ has called us to. The resurrection is everything. And you take it away, you remove that motivation and the incentive, see? And that really is the foundation of this next section. It's Paul repeating the same teaching pattern again, where he says, okay, the resurrection is true, Christ is raised, verse 20. And then he just assumes, again, this false understanding that, that the, the dead are not raised. And so he says, okay, then where's the motivation, where's the incentive to do these things? Now let's look, if you would, back at our starting passage, and we will... Um, Sum it up with some principles of application here, and then kind of go and break it down. So look back at verse 21, verse 29, rather. Here it is. And, and if you think about it, you can really start with a question, if Christ isn't raised, okay, because that's the idea. That's why he uses the word otherwise, okay? So he goes otherwise, and he's just referring back to his original 
uh, accusation of the argument that they had, which is, which is Christ isn't raised. So he says, otherwise, in other words, if Christ isn't raised, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? In other words, number one, why would anyone want to be saved? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? Verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? In other words, number two, application number two, why would anyone want to witness? If Christ isn't raised, and this is, the, this is the story for those who witness about Christ, why would anybody want to do it? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Number three, why would anyone want to live a holy life? Why would we do it if there's no resurrection? I look back to verse 29. Otherwise, look in your copy of God's word. What will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Now, I want to start out with a few comments about this verse. Um, this is one of those passages that is difficult to understand. And if you read through the Bible, you understand there are numerous places in the scriptures that you have to take some time. And you're going to have to apply yourself to what you understand about the scriptures, which which begs the question, do you understand the rest of the scriptures? Do you have a, a cumulative knowledge of the other parts of scripture so you can say what it doesn't mean, and then you can kind of narrow that down to what it does mean? And this is one of those places. And in Q&A services that we have from time to time, this question comes up on a fairly regular basis. And it appears to mean, as you look at it at face value, what? Vicarious baptism. That's what it appears to mean, right? In other words, the words seem to indicate that some of the Corinthian believers may have been baptized on behalf of friends who died before baptism. Very similar to the current Mormon doctrine practice today, which must be done in a Mormon temple, which is, they teach that all human beings, in order to be redeemed, must be baptized. And obviously some die before they get baptized, so Mormon doctrine allows someone else to be baptized in their stead. And they say that if you are baptized as a Mormon in the stead of someone who died without being baptized, that baptism goes out there and that person in their spirit form has to accept it in order for it to be good. So they're covered. You know, if they don't, they're not in Mormon heaven, it's because that person didn't accept the free baptism that I did for them. Okay, so we won't go any more Mormon doctrine. But the idea there is this, and that's what it seems to say, okay? It just seems to say that there's a vicarious baptism going on. Now, a couple of, couple of comments about that way to interpret this passage. It seems hard to believe that this heresy was, number one, being practiced by the Corinthian church. They did a lot of bad things, but this is like way off the scale. It's like way over there, okay? And number two, and here's the most, I think the most important argument, and we'll talk about some other things here in a minute, but number two, that Paul would react so calmly in the face of this practice. In other words, he doesn't even address it. And that seems very unusual for Paul because he addressed a lot of other things which we would probably deem to be less serious an infraction than this one would appear to be. So it doesn't appear that that's the correct understanding. We're not talking about vicarious baptism. They probably weren't doing that there. So it seems unlikely that that's the proper understanding. Paul is addressing the false teaching that the dead do not rise, right? I mean, that's the point. I mean, the reason for this whole section is because there's some in the Corinthian church that say the dead don't rise. So this understanding of this sentence wouldn't seem to help Paul make his case, would it? I mean, if we're if there were a situation of believers making sure that those who had died before were baptized, what difference would that make if the dead aren't raised? I mean, I, I think that that's, it makes a difficult 
to, to, a, to say, okay, this must have been what was going on, okay? So, from the scriptures, here's what it can't mean, okay? And here's the way that you take what you understand from scripture and apply it to a difficult passage to say, okay, it can't mean this. Okay, here's what it can't mean. It can't be teaching vicarious salvation because baptism isn't required for salvation. So, it certainly is the first step of obedience after salvation, but it isn't required to be saved. So, it can't be teaching vicarious salvation in any way that you're going and being baptized to help somebody make sure that they're saved. It can't be teaching that. It can't be teaching that salvation can occur or anything can occur as a credit to believers after death or to unbelievers after death because the scriptures teach that the unredeemed dead are held in hell until the second resurrection. Now, Luke 16.10 makes that very clear with Lazarus and the rich man, that there's a gulf fixed and nobody can do anything on either side of the gulf to help the person that's on the wrong side of the gulf, Okay. Nothing can be done on earth to change the destination of the unbelieving dead. Nothing. And nothing can be done on earth to change the destination of the believing dead either. Nothing can be done to credit them. It would be pointless to do it. Okay? And so the argument that, you know, you're being baptized for the dead wouldn't play into Paul's help to helping them understand that the dead that actually do rise. So we said the best argument that this was not the practice of the Corinthian church is the lack of an adamant series of arguments from Paul addressing the problem. Even if it was just by vicarious baptism, the whole, there's such a, a complex nature of the address of the problem he would have to make. He would have to say, okay, you know, first of all, baptism isn't required for salvation. Secondly, nothing that you're going to do is going to help that person. And so it doesn't help Paul's argument. So it doesn't seem to be that, that to be the case. Okay? You can't be adamant about it, but it does, that doesn't seem to be the meaning that we should take away. So let's look at the verse and see what it was that Paul perhaps intended. Okay? Look back there, if you would, at verse 29. Otherwise, he says... In other words, if Jesus isn't raised, if he isn't the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, what will those do? Poye Susan, that's a verb, future active indicative. In other words, what will they produce? What will they do? What will be the outcome who are baptized? And that's baptism in the normal way for the dead. Hooper, ton, necron. Hooper is found in the New Testament 160 times, that word hooper. Four. It's translated for 104 of the 160 times. It's translated of 12 times. It's translated above 12 times. And for one's sake, eight times. For on one's behalf, three times. More than three times. And in one's stead, twice. So, if you read it that way, you can say for the dead, or you can say of the dead, which doesn't make sense. Above the dead makes no sense. For one's sake, it perhaps could be that, depending on how you're taking that meaning. On one's behalf, it's only translated that three times out of 160 times. That's not the translation here, on, on one's behalf or in one's stead. Okay? So, you've got, they're being baptized. What will they do? They're being baptized for the dead. And that necron, dead, as we looked at before, in its most literal meaning, is one who's breathed his last, a corpse. So, they're being baptized for someone who's already dead. So, we can understand that. Okay? Now, for works as long as we don't translate it in one's stead or in someone else's place, which seems unlikely because there's only three places in all of the New Testament where that's translated. So it's not the translation here. So four we're going to stick with because that's right. So as we put all this together, factoring what it can't mean, as we just looked at a minute ago, a reasonable understanding could be this. You have people coming to faith in the, in the Corinthian church, and they desire to be baptized and give outward testimony of their commitment to Jesus. I think the first half of the, verse, the, first half of the sentence easily gives us that. They're coming, and they want to declare uh, their commitment to Christ, their testimony, their outward testimony of Christ, to commitment to Christ by being baptized. Now, 
they're doing this, mark this, because they were first exposed to believers who are now with Christ that had led such godly lives and had such extreme and, and uh, excellent testimonies. They're doing it for them. Now, here's the scenario, okay? Now, once again, difficult passage to understand. It's unlikely it means vicarious baptism for the reasons we said. It perhaps can mean this, and here's the idea. They may be saying things like this, and you can imagine this in the New Testament church. Remember, the New Testament church in Corinth was just this island of Christianity, this sea of paganism. And they'd come out of all kinds of backgrounds. There wasn't layers of Christianity in the society. They come straight out of the pagan temple, right into the Christian church, okay, because they came to faith. So here's the thing. They may be saying things like this. You can imagine a man saying this. I'm doing this for Onesimus, who always came by the temple and witnessed to me. He never would buy meat offered to idols. Now, I'm just using stuff we understand from 1 Corinthians, and you can see this. He never would eat meat offered to idols because I had such a problem with so-called Christians coming and buying discounted meat that we'd already offered to Diana. I mean, how could you be a Christian and eat something that I dedicated to an idol? But he never would. He wouldn't even eat meat. He told me he wouldn't even eat meat if it, if it, if it would uh, cause me to, to turn away from what he believed. He never judged me. He just told me over and over again how he came to understand who the one true God really was because this Jesus rose from the dead. And I know he's with Jesus now. And I'm following Christ to carry on his life and his witness. And I know I'll be with Jesus when I die too and I'm doing this for him. That makes sense? That fits what the sentence says. That is a proper way of expressing that. And perhaps you even, even expressed that. I came to faith for my granddad. My granddad was first, the first one to come to faith in our family after World War II. I'm talking about me. And I do what I do. He was very, a very positive witness. Always worked in the Salvation Army. Always worked with the homeless. All, did all kinds of stuff. He was the first one to come to faith. I do what I do for him. I mean, I'm glad that he's in heaven and he can see that I teach the gospel for 24 years. I'm, I'm grateful for that. And you've probably expressed it that way. Perhaps if you've got a heritage of people who know Christ, perhaps you've expressed it or understood it in your mind in that way. You're grateful for the great cloud of witnesses that watches. Or maybe Lydia, who passed away last year, had such a wonderful testimony of God's goodness to her. All throughout her illness, I came to realize that her relationship with Jesus was real. And she didn't seem overly concerned about dying because she told me that her Savior was raised from the dead and she would be too. So I'm going to follow Jesus too. And I'm standing here today to dedicate my faith and to follow in baptism for her. And so that can be a way that we can understand a very difficult passage without violating a whole bunch of other passages we know are very clear about how salvation occurs and what can and cannot happen after death. It's certainly possible that that's Paul's intent as he makes the statement. And once again, you can't be adamant about it, but it helps us understand it in the correct way, this very difficult way the sentence is put together. And if this is the case, then the second sentence in verse 29, look at the second sentence, okay, makes good sense. So the first sentence is, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Now here's the second sentence, okay. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So it makes sense to say then that we're doing it for them. I'm going to follow their great testimony. But why would I ever do that if they're never going to be raised? Why would, why would this person follow Lydia who, who had this great testimony and was sick for a long time and died and she was not concerned that she was going to die because she knew her Savior was going to raise her? Why would I ever follow Christ? Why would I be concerned that I should commit to him if there's no resurrection from the dead, you see? If the dead aren't raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? In other words, here's your motivation principle number one. 
or the application, if you will, why would anyone follow another's example into Christianity if the dead are raised? Why would they do that? They wouldn't. If Jesus really isn't the first fruits and no one is really his and he can't come back because he's still in the grave, so you aren't going to rise either and your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins, why would anybody follow Christ if there's no resurrection? So the point Paul was making is that their practice of being baptized on behalf of the deceased members makes no sense where the resurrection of the dead is doubted as it was by some within the Corinthian church. Now look at verses 30 through 32, and we'll wrap up our time together in these passages. Look at verse 30, okay? So we're going to, again, assume that there's no resurrection, so the motivations are going to be gone to, first of all, give your faith, put your faith and hope in Christ. Secondly, verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? Verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by boasting in which you by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Now, this is directly related to the witness each believer had. Okay, the work of the ministry, the carrying out of the Great Commission. Peter said, and a couple of illustrations about how this works out. Okay, we're in danger every hour. Uh, boasting with I have in Christ uh, Jesus our Lord, I die daily. From human motives, if I fought with wild beasts of Ephesus, what does it profit me? Now, here's the thing. 1 Peter 4, 12. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Peter says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Catch this. If you are reviled for, here's the thing. Why are you having a fiery ordeal? You're being reviled for the name of Christ. So the difficult time's coming on you because you've identified with Christ, you're witnessing about Christ, you're living a life that is pleasing to him, and you're very vocal about that. So if, the, if you're reviled in, for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So you're exactly where you need to be, you see, but it's going to be difficult if you stand for Christ. And we don't have to look very far in the book of Acts after the formation of the church for the message of the gospel to bring about persecution and death. Now we've already talked about Stephen Paul certainly understood this in Acts chapter 14, verse 19, where he says this, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, was he just up there talking about, you know, his vacation from last year or with a, you know, a really catchy video and whatever and just kind of, no. He was talking about Christ who died and rose and that they were sinners and needed to identify with that understanding, see? And what happened? So he gets dragged out of the city and he gets stoned and they assume that he's dead. But as you know, he wasn't dead at that point, just mostly dead, and he likely had a vision of heaven that he spoke about later. How many knew where that reference was from? Okay, good job. All right, a couple more illustrations. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Paul and his companions are spreading the gospel. Acts 17, 1 says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue, of the Jews. And verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now catch this. Explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So they've given the gospel, right? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what Paul did every time he went into a city. He went straight to the synagogue and gave him the gospel. It always worked out really well and everybody really liked him and he was the, voted the most liked guy in the city every time, right? No. Absolutely not. That's not how that, you can't make friends and influence people when you go in there and say, Christ died for your sins, and you're a sinner, all of you, and you're going to have to repent. 
So Christ had to, had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So what happened after that happened? Well, um, some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, set the city in uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people, and they, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the whole world have come here also. That's the life of a believer. Peter says, don't be, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's with you. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? Why indeed? Because you're giving out the gospel so clearly. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Are they servants of Christ, Paul says? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. So not only is witnessing dangerous, travel is dangerous too between the witnessing places. Uh, I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Verse 27, I've been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights. In the course of the ministry, Paul and innumerable others have been in need, in hunger, and in thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? Verse 30, if I have to boast, I'll boast of what pertains to my weakness that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Mascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. In other words, all that stuff happened. And the most recent one was, I was about to be killed in Damascus, and I got let out of, of, of the window in a basket and a rope and be able to escape the city. So that's my life. That's the life of a believer, see? Paul turns then here from the practice of the Corinthians to the experience of Christians generally and of apostles in particular. This is the life of a believer. So he says in verse 30, look back in your copy of 1 Corinthians 15, 30. He says this, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our, our Lord, I die daily. And we just saw that, didn't we? I mean, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul just kind of lists it off. And we saw it again in, in Acts where he said, you know, the, the sentence of death was already on me. I mean, we recognized we, we were going to die. This was going to be bad. They, they grabbed Paul and Barnabas in that particular case, and they beat him with rods, and, and they were going to pull him apart. So motivation principle number two, or really the principle of why we do what we do, why we follow, why would anyone want to take on the danger of witnessing if there isn't any resurrection. I mean, here's the application. I mean, if, if death is the end of everything and there's no resurrection, you'd likely live a lot longer if you avoided Christianity. And that's kind of how you can apply it, right? Besides all of that, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That third part of the gospel is where the power for the other two points is displayed. 
right? Because if, it's, if he's just crucified, he's not raised, that's a powerless Christ with no redemptive ability. A crucified, buried Christ without the resurrection is powerless, a powerless death. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, he says this. So not only are we in great danger, but 1 Corinthians 15, 15, he says, Moreover, we even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise. In fact, if the, death or, if the dead are not raised. See? So as we pointed out, if no one physically rises from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, then first of all, why would we even go out and witness? Because we're just putting our lives in danger and death is the end of everything and you're going to live a lot longer if you don't say anything about Christ. And secondly, we're just a bunch of liars. We're out there saying Christ rose and he didn't. And nobody wants to be killed or persecuted for a lie. We're not going to go out and perpetrate a lie and then put our lives on the line, right? And nobody wants to be killed for that. We, we're found, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, we're found, which means we're exposed. We're caught, Paul says. If Christ isn't risen, then to witness that he did would be to be false witnesses. pseudo race, not the real martyr, the false one. Instead of being a true witness who just made a mistake, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then they've been caught out in the lie. Christianity isn't a system of good advice and witnesses about a good person, okay? And not just telling people a great way to live. In fact, why would anybody live that way? That's the next section in 1 Corinthians 15, right up to verse 34. Why would you even live a holy life? What would be the point? Christianity isn't just telling people a good way to live. They'd said something happened, see? God raised up Christ. And that information is the gospel, the good news of what God has done. It's a testimony of God's saving act. And if they had testified that God raised Christ, but if there's no resurrection, then dead Jesus didn't rise. And it's a lie to say that God raised him. And Paul's saying, in effect, Christ rose or we all lied. And why would I say that Christ rose if he didn't rise and put my life in danger? I wouldn't, see. We testified against God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise. They said he did something. It's a court term, see. Someone who bears record stands and gives testimony about something. If no one really physically rises from the dead, then God didn't raise Jesus. And if Jesus didn't rise, we've testified falsely against God, see? Paul says we bore record that God did something he didn't do. And of course, Paul doesn't say this, but if God didn't raise Jesus up, then the angels in Matthew 28, 5 through 6, which we're going to read next Sunday morning early out on the lawn, where they said, don't be afraid, I know that you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified, he's not here, he's risen just as he said, come see the place where he laid him, they also told a big whopper, right? And if Jesus didn't rise, then they told a lie too. And if the dead don't rise, then God didn't raise Jesus bodily from the grave, and all the disciples and witnesses and apostles are all liars, and putting their life in jeopardy for nothing, and they've accused God of something he didn't do, and apparently the only ones who may have been telling the truth, they were in Matthew 28, 11 through 13, which we'll read this coming Friday, for Good Friday, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that happened. And when they had assembled and the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you're to say his disciples came by at night and stole away his body while we were asleep. So they're the only ones who told the truth. If Christ isn't raised, and everybody else who was supposedly telling the truth all lied. That's what Paul says. And put their life in jeopardy for no reason. If the dead, in fact, are not raised. The corollary is, if it's as you say it is then there's no good news. If Jesus didn't rise, he isn't God. And we lied, and the angels lied, and he lied, and the gospel preaching is a sham, it's a hoax, it's a fake, 
It's a phony. He didn't conquer death. He didn't conquer sin. He didn't conquer hell. There's no faith, no deliverance, bad news. And the application is this, beloved. Why would anybody be motivated to take on the danger of witnessing if there isn't any resurrection? You'd live a lot longer if you didn't do it. See? But here's the thing. We follow the examples of believers who've gone before because we know, and the Bible affirms indeed, very clearly, that Jesus rose and that he raised them. That's not even in any question. See, Paul addresses the argument that they're using and shows them the application of that argument and how the incentives to live in a certain way and the motivations to live in a certain way are all removed. That Jesus isn't raised. But we know for sure that he is. And we'll look next time at, as it relates to holy living. But the fact of the matter is, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, who are those, beloved? Are those the ones that are, that are waiting for the second resurrection in hell? No. They're getting no benefit of watching anybody else, okay? I mean, all of that camaraderie and, you know, you're in hell with your buddies and it's all going to be great. See, friendship and enjoyment and blessing and camaraderie and fellowship, guess who established all those things? Those belong to the Lord. He's the one who gives those blessings. And when you've separated yourself from him, you've separated yourself from them. So who are the witnesses? Those are the ones who, they counted their lives not worthy. They waited for the second resurrection. Those are the ones who were gladly giving up their lives. Those are like Paul who said, hey, I had the sentence of death on me. What? I didn't care. Why? Because God raises the dead. I'm all right with that. We suffer all kinds of persecution, Peter said. It shouldn't surprise us. Because when you name the name of Christ, you identify with him. And if you're persecuted for preaching Christ, then God's blessing rests on you. And the Holy Spirit is there. And it's obvious, see, these are those folks. They've already gone on ahead. We have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us what? Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangled us. Take a look at your life. Recognize there's some accountability. Recognize someday you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Recognize that God holds all of those things and understands all those things. Has forgiven your sin. But look, unencumber yourself. Give yourself wholly to this, right? And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. There's an unencumbered throng of saints who've gone before us, and we don't want to stand in their presence and be ashamed. Right? We don't want to go there after compromising dozens of times and then still under the blood of Christ go there amongst this whole cloud of witnesses. Why? Because Christ died and rose, and you can live unencumbered, complete commitment to him, can't you? With holiness of living and unafraid of dying. Why? You, and unafraid of witnessing, because he rose, and you win. And that's not even a question at the end, see? And all this rests on Christ's resurrection, see? And all the motivations to live a holy life and a witness, and all of that all come because Christ rose. Everything keys on that as Paul just continues to teach this way, see? The resurrection is important. You say it doesn't, it doesn't happen. You've got a whole bunch of problems with your faith, and your faith is vain, and you're still in your sin, and Christ was powerless. That's not the case. But if you say that again, again, you don't have any motivation to witness. You don't have any motivation to live a holy life. Lay down your life for, for what you believe. Why would you do that it's a, if it's a lie, see? After Jesus got finished giving them the Great Commission, for the fifth time at the end of Acts chapter 1. We're going to close with this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, 
maybe you haven't read it like this before, but as you understand what we just got through saying, perhaps it'll really resonate with you. So after he had said these things, what things? Well, to go and make disciples, the whole thing he said, all right? And then are you going to set up your kingdom? It's not for you to know, you know, all that. He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they are gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. And one of the reasons that, and I'm sure you're the same way, that I witness and I give my life to the vocation I've given it to is because I know that I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and I'm going to have to give an account, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the angel's admonition, isn't it? He just got through telling you some stuff to do. And he's going to come back and check and see how you did. Right? So the motivation to do the things is what? A future meeting with Christ. And we know that's going to happen because he what? The tomb is empty and he rose. And that verified everything else he said, you see? So our whole thing kind of centers on this resurrection of Christ. It is, it gives the power to the previous two points of the gospel. See? So Paul's like, don't be fooled by bad theology, okay? Good theology is going to motivate you to live a certain way, to respond to the world's declaration that Christ is raised. See? What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? See? Much application in the resurrection of Christ. Not just a fact we can know, a point in the gospel, but it motivates us to live a certain way, to witness, to put our lives on the line, to be holy, all those things included in this marvelous thing we've studied today. Just bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you that you've given us time to build this great case Paul has been giving to us. We're grateful for it. We thank you for all the background that we understand. We thank you for the rest of the New Testament that we can just kind of put together here and say, okay, um, what can this mean? What can it not mean? and then be able to come up with a reasonable understanding of what Paul's, the points Paul's trying to make. Father, we, we follow Christ because you've given him to us, and he came and lived a sinful, sinless life, and died a vicarious substitutionary death, and rose again and conquered death. Everything we do really is based on that understanding that we can be forgiven from our sin because Christ died for it. He paid with his life for our own sin. He took on the sin of the world and endured the wrath that God poured out on that sin, paid for it, and rose. And that's the message of the gospel, beloved. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. What are you going to do with that? That has much implication for you. That means you are who he said you are. You are sinful and separate from God and still in your sin, awaiting death, which is physical death, is just the indication that what God said is true. And spiritual death is where you already are and eternal death is where you're headed. But that doesn't have to be because again, the Lord Terry's will celebrate Easter's resurrection morning and declare now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Place your faith and your hope Christ.
Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Understand it was paid for on the cross. And receive salvation that God has provided for you. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. He is who he said he is. He's done what he said he did. And he's coming back. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. The key to everything for you. And you'll be saved. Lord, we thank you that again we can call upon your name. And be redeemed. We can be made new. Our sins can be forgiven regardless of what we've done. What uh, what we've said before. What uh, our life has indicated over uh, the course of our life. Regardless of how old or young we are. You've provided salvation. Christ stands now making intercession for you. But someday he'll come back and he'll be the judge. And then it'll be too late. So as Paul said, we beg you on behalf as ambassadors of Christ, be reconciled to God through Christ. You can fix this because Christ has already solved your problem, your sin problem. We thank you today for your great blessing on us. We thank you for your word so clear. We thank you for this, this week that will celebrate the resurrection which has so much impact on us. Not just not just that it's the facts of the resurrection that are so true, but what they mean and what that, how that applies to us. Lord, help us to be rejoicing this week as we think about all that you've accomplished. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.